Well, good evening. Glad you guys are here as we continue our series. Really basically talking about comparative religions, but kind of the beliefs that are shaping our world. So that's what we're talking about. Just make yourself comfortable. It's pretty informal. Just come on in and find a seat. Uh, those of you been with us before, probably realize kind of how we do things. Uh, you text your questions during class to that number. It's also on your handout, and uh, we can't answer all of them, and I do apologize for that, but I think Laura does a good job of trying to see, you know, put a bunch of questions together and at least get to the, to the main points that you're thinking about. I think that's one of the, for me, it's one of the most fun things getting to interact with what questions that you have, so that's what we are doing. Let me say a prayer for us, and we will dive into this session. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for allowing us to live in a country where we can freely gather to study your word, to learn how to think biblically about the events in our lives, to look at the other beliefs in this world and how to reach out, speak to them. Lord, tonight, you know it's heavy on our mind about all the folks in Texas who are still struggling to recover. I thank you for the generosity of the American people and sending the supplies there. I thank you for the generosity of this congregation for reaching out to help. But, Lord, we know that uh, we can never do enough, and we pray for strength for them. Pray that uh, what they, when they receive this outpouring of help, they might know that, in, that we do it in your name. I also pray for those who live in Florida, those in uh, Puerto Rico, and all the people in the path of that storm. What a frightening thing. Lord, I pray that... Uh, they might turn to you for comfort, that you would give them safety. Pray that you would comfort them in a, a terrifying time. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, our uh, session tonight, as we kind of move, the way we're kind of doing this is we'll focus on a particular belief system, really a religion, and then we'll talk about how that's shaping our world through various nations or through various issues. And in this lesson, we want to talk about Islam. I want to talk about the religion of Islam and want to start basically by asking this question. And we're going to answer two or three key questions as we go through this. But the first question is, what can we learn from the origin and the development of Islam to kind of bring us up to a discussion of how that impacts our world? And so to begin, we are going back to the Middle East. This is the modern Middle East. And Islam is not confined to the Middle East, but this is the birthplace of Islam. So I want to take us there. We're going to spend, we'll come back all the way full circle to this place and this map to talk about what's going on today. But before we do that, I want to actually take you back in history quite a ways to 2000 BC. And I want to start there, and I'm just going to kind of tell you the story I'm going to leave out a lot of details, but I'd like to kind of thread through and give you a good understanding and a basic feeling about the origins and the development of Islam. So this is what the world looked like in the Middle East about the time of Abraham, approximately 2,000 years before the time of Christ. And if you remember, Abraham was living in Iraq, or at least what's modern-day uh, Iraq, and he was here in Ur, and he made a journey because God called to him and he went to the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel. Abraham was promised three things by God. He was promised that I will make you into a great nation. In other words, you'll have all these descendants and you will become a great nation. I will give you a land, a country, a place where your descendants will dwell and thirdly, I will bless all the nations of the earth through you. So those are the promises that were made to Abraham. Well, Abraham went to the promised land. As you know, he was faithful. He went to the promised land, and he and his wife Sarah didn't have any children. And so he kind of expected that this great nation thing, they'd pretty quickly, you know, be having a, you know, just a bouncing baby boy. But it didn't happen. And so Sarah... And Abraham kind of talked together, and Sarah made this recommendation. She said, Abraham, if I can't have children on my own, you will have children for me through my servant, through my maid, Hagar, who was an Egyptian woman. This was not an uncommon practice in that time, and so she gave Hagar to Abraham to have a child, and in, in that sense, because that was her servant, it would be as though you know, she's... Uh, 
having a child and how Abraham would fulfill that promise. And so he does. He lies with Hagar. Hagar becomes pregnant. Hagar begins to think pretty highly of herself, and she and Sarah end up in a, a great deal of conflict. And so Hagar, Sarah begins to treat her very poorly. If you remember this from the passage in Genesis, and so Hagar runs away. So I'm going to take you back to the text a little bit because I want you to see that this history is grounded in the Bible. So as Hagar runs away, the angel of the Lord came to her and said, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now a child, and you will have a son, and you shall name him Ishmael. Ishmael means God hears. There's a play on that name. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. So she goes back, and she submits to Sarah, her mistress, and so when the time comes, she does have a little boy, and they name him Ishmael. God hears. And over time, Ishmael grows, and he grows, and uh, Abraham is very fond of the young man, and he believes this is how God is going to fulfill this promise. But then Abraham has another word from God. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And so Abraham, by this time, is about 100 years old, and so he fell face down, and he laughed, and he said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. So Abraham loves his son Ishmael. And he said, God, I, I know you're God, but you know, maybe we need to have a little talk about the facts of life because we're not having any kids. But maybe Ishmael could be the one that you fulfill these promises through. And God answers him, and says to him, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. Isaac means he laughs. It's Yitzhak in Hebrew. And so another play on the names, Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Again, that kind of play on his name. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful. I will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. And so God comes to him and kind of breaks the tradition in the sense that, in a sense, Ishmael is the firstborn of Abraham. Not the firstborn of Abraham and Sarah, but the firstborn of Abraham. And so Abraham's thinking, this is going to be my son, this is going to be the heir, and he's going to be the heir to the promises of God. And God says, no. He said, Isaac is going to be the one I'm going to have the covenant with. And so, as you know, Isaac becomes the father of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. But God says, I will also bless Ishmael for your sake and he'll become the father of 12 rulers as well, and I'll make him also into a great nation. Well, it happened just as God said. Sarah becomes pregnant. A year later, Isaac is born, and Sarah laughs, and Abraham laughs in their joy at having the son Isaac. Well, a little time passes by, and Sarah becomes very jealous of Hagar and her son Ishmael. Ishmael's about 13 years older than Isaac. And so she goes to Abraham and she said, this is all your fault. And she says, you need to get rid of that slave woman and her child. Abraham, like a good husband, basically says, yes, dear. A little more to it than that. But God tells him, it's okay. He said, you, you can do this because my hand is in this process, not yours. And so he does. He sends Hagar and Ishmael out into the desert. It's one of the really poignant pieces of Genesis. You might want to read on from here. Uh, between 17 and Genesis 17 and 26, you'll see this story. And so Hagar and Ishmael set out and they go south. And according to tradition, they go south into Saudi Arabia to the town of Mecca. And they think they're going to die in the desert. But God again comes to her and sort of rescues them. He said, I've committed that I'm going to make him, Ishmael, into a nation as well. And so he does rescue them. And so off they go in the story. The last thing Genesis says about Ishmael is kind of a summary at the end. 
it said, this is the account of Abraham's son Ishmael. This is sort of closing the loop, letting you know God did what he said he was going to do. Whom Sarah's maidservant, Hagar the Egyptian, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael listed in the order of their birth. And there are 12 sons. Altogether, Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and he was gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the area uh, from Havilah to Shur. Basically, they settled in the northern part of Saudi Arabia. Okay, so down near Egypt, near Saudi Arabia, is where the, his people settled. And so, show you that area. That's where we want to kind of go home in on this just a little bit. But he ba they basically settle down in this area. Remember, this is about 2,000 years B.C. So I want to fast forward now, though, and come to about 570 A.D. Because from the time of Abraham, you basically have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel imprisoned in Egypt. Moses comes takes them out of Egypt, you're about 1400 BC, gives them the law of Moses, they become the Jewish people and the Jewish nation, they go back to Israel or Canaan, and they settle there like God said, they have King David and King Solomon and build the temple there. And so they go through all of Jewish history, you come all the way down to the time of Christ. Jesus Christ is born, he is preaches, He's crucified, he's raised, let's call that 33 AD, and Christianity is born, if you will, begun then as a fulfillment of the prophecies about the Messiah. Fast forward over 500 years later, so we're about 570 AD. So you have Christians and Jews all scattered around. And at this time in uh, Arabia, what you have is a in this Arabian Peninsula, Ishmael turned into a nation of 12 tribes, and they became, according to tradition, the 12 tribes of Arabia. They settled this Arabian Peninsula, and they became very pagan. And when I say pagan, I mean that in a religious sense, in that they were worshiping any number of gods. And in fact, in this little city of Mecca, right there, there was a shrine called the Kaaba, and the Kaaba had a long history, but basically Mecca was a trading location for all of these tribes, but it was also kind of a, not a tourist destination, but a religious place to go because they had monuments to every god you can imagine. They had a monument to Mary and Jesus. They had a monument to Abraham. They had a monument to the moon goddess. They had just any religion you could want. And because those tribes were very varied in what they worshiped, some of them worshiped pretty much everything, you know, the gods and the rocks and the stones and the trees, and others worshiped the moon goddess, others were Christians, some were Jews. So Mecca was a place where everybody of every religion could come together. And while you were there, hey, let's have a flea market. And so it was a place of trade as well as that. So in 570 AD, you're in the Arabian Peninsula and it's very pagan polytheistic. Well, this time, a little boy is born. His name is Muhammad. Muhammad's dad died before he was born, and by the time he was six years old, his mother had also died of an illness, and so he became an orphan early in life. Muhammad was adopted by his uncle, who happened to be the sheikh or the leader of a small clan, and so he went to work for his uncle on the caravan trade because they were traders, and so he would go on caravans, he kind of learned the business. As he got older, he became able to lead some caravans and do some business. According to all traditional accounts, Muhammad was really well thought of for his honesty. He was very upright, he was trustworthy, handsome young man, you know, flowing black hair, broad shoulders, just a really good looking guy. But by the time he's 25 years old, he's uh, basically still working for his uncle, has no parents, uh, has a job, but he really has no great prospects in life, being uh, an orphan. Well, there was an older woman, her name was Khadija, and she was 40 years old and she was uh, a widow. She had, in fact, been married three different times and her husbands had died. And really contrary to the norm in that culture, because women were not thought of as leaders in this culture, 
uh, by a long shot. Couldn't drive, couldn't vote, I mean, couldn't own a business. But for some, she was really unusual in the sense that she ran a caravan business. I mean, obviously from her husband's, but she was able to run it. And so she hired the young Muhammad to basically lead one of her caravans. And she was so impressed with him and how well he did, basically she proposed marriage to him. And so Muhammad married, he's 25 years old, marries Khadija at 40. And by all accounts, really close, very happy marriage. So that kind of vaulted him up into kind of a business owner. And so for the next 25 years, he basically is trading and kind of in the top of Meccan society. But it always troubled him how society oppressed the poor. Having been an orphan, he was keenly aware of that. And so he began to be very unsettled by the unfairness and the inequity of it. He began to be unsettled by all the gods and goddesses and and he just thought there has to be more than this. And so he was drawn out into the desert periodically for these little spiritual retreats. And one time during in uh, 610 AD, so he's 40 years old now, in 610 AD, he's on one of these little retreats and he basically hears from the angel Gabriel talking to him on behalf of God, scares him to death, and, he's, and basically the angel Gabriel says, I want you to recite what I tell you and tell people these things. And so began to recite to him over the next uh, 22 years 114 different revelations or messages for him. He left and he began to tell people these messages from God. Those 114 messages, much later, get written down. That is the Quran. The Quran has 114 shuras, S-U-R-A, or chapters, but there were those 114 revelations to Muhammad that he spoke to people. It wasn't written down for quite a while. But he spoke those revelations, and what Muhammad thought he was doing, he was a descendant of Ishmael, and what Muhammad thought he was doing was restoring the religion of Abraham, the one true God of justice and taking care of the poor. Now, Muhammad was familiar with Christianity. He was familiar with Judaism, and he thought that he wasn't really departing from that. He saw himself as a prophet in the line of prophets from Abraham and Noah and Moses and David and Jesus and Muhammad. And he was there to give God's message to the world about the one true God and how you should treat people and how you could only worship him. Well, he began to preach this over time. And that was very disruptive to Meccan society. So I'm going to kind of shorten this a little bit. Let me just say it hurt business, you know, to uh, say there's only one God. And so they end up kind of kicking him out and expelling him. His wife died and... The Meccan society turned against him, and so he and his small band of followers in 622 A.D. fled to Medina, a city to the north. This is called the Hajira, or the flight to Medina. This date is when the Islamic calendar begins. Our Julian calendar, that's the dating system we use, begins with what? Birth of Jesus Christ. In Islamic society, their calendar begins there. That's zero. And so they date it from this movement to Medina. Well, he goes to Medina. There are Jews living in Medina. There are pagans living there. He begins to preach this message. He begins to gather a group of people. And in about eight years, he goes back to Mecca. This time, he goes with about 10,000 soldiers and says, Hey, remember me. Would you like to reconsider this message that I've been giving? And Meccans say, we have had a change of heart, and we have decided to follow you. So he goes into the Kaaba, and he destroys all the idols in the temples. And the Kaaba, in the pilgrimage you'll hear about, that's one of the, when you see the pictures of this big, kind of big square building with literally 100,000 people around it, happens at the pilgrimage every year. That's the Kaaba. And so that's a holy place, Mecca, where he was born and where these things happen. And so Muhammad um, establishes this religion, establishes this movement. Again, he doesn't think he's establishing a new religion. He thinks he's continuing the true religion of Abraham. He died in 632. 
So shortly after he went back there, he died. At that time, Islam underwent a very turbulent period of time because they had to figure out who would be the successor. So when Muhammad died, they had a, to choose a caliph. A caliph is basically a successor of Muhammad. And there were two different opinions about how to do that. First of all, there was a young man named Ali. Ali was Muhammad's young cousin. And when Muhammad came home that first day, after getting the revelation, he spoke to his wife. He was scared to death, and she believed. She said, I, don't, I believe that that's God speaking to you. I believe you're called to be a prophet. Young Ali, who was 13 years old at that time, was the second person to believe in him. Ali grew up to marry Muhammad's daughter, and so he's his cousin, he's his son-in-law. So there was a group of people who said, well, obviously Ali is going to be the next leader because he's related to the prophet. And so prophets go down through their bloodline. God is going to anoint Ali to be that. They were called the Shi'at Ali, the party in favor of Ali. Unfortunately, some of the other Muslims from a tribal background said, no, that's not how we do things here. I mean, yes, we need a religious leader, but our religious leader is not our political leader. That's not the way we've always done it in our Arabic way. We've always had a little council get together and elect the new leader, and that council was called a sunnah. It means tradition, but the, the tradition of the was to get this council together and pick somebody. So while Ali is busy burying Muhammad, they get a little council together, and they pick a guy named Abu Bakr. A lot I could tell you about these guys, but basically Abu Bakr becomes the next caliph. Well, the party of Ali says, hey, we do not like this. Let's just have a throwdown about this right now. But Ali is a guy of pretty good character, and he said, look, unity is important. He said, I'll just let it go, and he lets it go. So then when Abu Bakr dies, think, okay, surely now Ali is going to be the next caliph, but no. They have another little council, and they pick another guy, Umar. They pick Umar because he's a really good soldier. And so Umar becomes the, the caliph. Ali tells his supporters, listen, it's all about unity, and we're just not going to make a big deal about it. Umar kicks all the Jews and Christians out of Saudi Arabia, out of the Arabian Peninsula, and the armies come boiling out of there. What Muhammad and his successors have done is unite all those Arabic tribes, and they've united them not so much politically as under the ideology, under the faith of Islam, and they go out conquering, and they are militarily very successful. Well, after Umar, they pick this merchant named Uthman. Uthman, terrible choice. Uh, in fact, three of these four guys, by the way, were killed by fellow Muslims. Three of the four successors. So there's a lot of uh, discontent happening here. Uthman, the only really notable thing he did was he had the Quran written down. So the Quran you see today came from that time period of Uthman, about 652, I think, is kind of a traditional date for that. So he had it written down, he gets killed, and finally it's time for Ali, and he becomes the caliph. Well, the party of Ali said he's the first legitimate guy. So the people who thought that the successor should be chosen politically and the, uh, that the polit political leader and the religious leader would be different people were called Sunnis from that Sunnah. The people who thought that it needed to follow the bloodline of Muhammad and that your religious leader was also going to be your political leader were called Shiites from the party of Ali. And so that difference continued down through Islam. But where it really got ugly was a little bit later, we're gonna go to uh, a place called Karbala, and we're now gonna be at 680 AD. Ali has been killed. He has two sons, Hassan and Hussein. Hassan gets poisoned, and so the Shiites, the ones who are in favor of Ali, they're supporting Hussein to be the next caliph. Well, the Sunnis have picked somebody else. And so Hussein and his family are on their way to get reinforcements because they've decided we're going to have to fight this out. But the Sunni army, 10,000 horsemen, catch him in Karbala before he can get to his army. And they surround him and his family and they try to uh, starve them out. 
Well, Hussein won't give in, and finally he and his men ride out in a noble but doomed battle against all these people, and he is killed, his children are killed, they're all martyred at Karbala in 680 AD. Well, from that time on, the Shiites and the Sunnis not only have a difference of opinion about this, they've got some really bad blood. And from that time until today, there's a shrine today in Karbala. Karbala's in modern-day Iraq. There are about 10 million pilgrims who go to that site every year to remember the Battle of Karbala and what happened to Ali's descendants. And so you have a real schism there, if you will, between the Shiites and the Sunnis. And so we're going to talk about the divisions uh, within Islam, but I wanted you to see how long ago that division came about, how it came about over a uh, several things, but fundamentally a difference of opinion. Will our religious ruler also be our political ruler or not? Sunnis say, no, our religious ruler is, is our religious authority, but our political leader might be a president, might be a prime minister. Shiites say no. God's leader, God's chosen prophet, will also be our political leader. But also to see what kind of long-term inbred hostility there is between these two factions. So let's fast forward to today, show you a big picture of, of the world today. The dark green are Shiites, the lighter green are Sunni Muslims. So just looking at this, let me give you a couple of statistics. There are about 85 to 90 percent of Muslims are Sunnis, and about 10 to 15 percent are Shiites. But I want to make this point to you. This is really interesting. Notice where the Shiites are gathered. In the Middle East, that's where I've circled there, is the Middle East, Shiites are 35% of the Muslim population there. Now, obviously, there are all kinds of Sunnis in Africa, largest Muslim nation down here in, is Indonesia. But in the Middle East, even though they're a minority elsewhere, Shiites make up about 35%. In Iran, about 89% Shiite, and in Iraq, about 60%. Shiites. So you have a large concentration of Shiites in the Middle East. A couple of other branches of Islam, and I'm kind of going through this quickly, but hopefully you kind of see how we got to where we are today. Uh, let me just name off some names you might know, but Sufis uh, is a branch of Islam that's much more mystical. And by the way, there are all different varieties of Islam. I mean, it's like any other religion that's been around a long time. You're going to see a lot of variations. Not all Muslims practice their religion in the same way, and not all of them share exactly the same beliefs. In just a minute, I'll give you a few core beliefs that they all share, but I wouldn't want you to think that all Muslims believe exactly the same thing and practice exactly the same way. You've seen the Sunni-Shiite split, but also the Sufis are very mystic. Have you ever heard of a whirling dervish? Uh, those are Sufis, Sufi dancers. They're very much into expressive kind of form for religion. You've probably heard of Wahhabis. Uh, a guy named uh, Wahhab died in 1792, so a couple hundred years ago, restored a very fundamentalist form of Islam. And it's called, uh, it's Sunni, but within the Sunni branch, it's called Wahhabism or Wahhabi religion. It is the official religion of the nation of Saudi Arabia, is uh, Wahhabism. Then you have Salafi Islam, which is also Sunni, but it's also a very puritanical, very strict form of Sunni Islam. And so you see a variety of Islam, but some of them very strict, very fundamental. And then you'll see more, I guess the word we would use would be liberal forms of Islam in the world as well. So, but the two large branches are Shiites and Sunnis, and within the Sunnis, you'll see some very different sects that have come up over time. So, beliefs. Talk about the five pillars of Islam. So, whatever sect people fall into, whatever big piece, they're fundamentally going to adhere to these five pillars of Islam. First is the testimony of faith, the Shahada. We talked about this. 
Uh, we talked about Judaism, the fundamental, basic confession of faith. Not everything they believe is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. We talked about Christianity, the fundamental confession of faith. Not everything that Christianity believes, not even everything essential, but this Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Messiah. He is literally the Son of God. For Muslims, it's this testimony of faith. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. And Shiites add, and Ali is the friend of Muhammad. Okay? Because of the bloodline of Ali. So that fundamental confession of faith. Ritual prayer. Sunnis pray five times a day. Well, I say they, Sunnis pray five times a day. That's like every Muslim does everything perfectly. I'm going to tell you what the teaching is. I can't guarantee you that every Muslim everywhere does this, but these are the fundamental uh, beliefs. Five times a day. A lot of, of Shiites, though, pray three times a day. But basically ritual prayer. Um, almsgiving. So a certain percentage of your income you give to be distributed among the poor. Fasting during the month of Ramadan. Don't eat or drink anything from the time the sun comes up till the time the sun sets. So you'll see that 30-day period. Uh, that's a big festival that Muslims observe. I mean, obviously not all Muslims observe it, but I'm talking about the core beliefs. And then the pilgrimage to Mecca, the Hajj. This is compulsory once in a lifetime if you have the ability to do it. And so you will see tens of millions of people go to Mecca you know, during the annual pilgrimage each year, and they'll do a lot of ritual things, but one of the things is they go to the Kaaba and they go back to the holiest site in Islam, which is Mecca. So those are kind of the five basic pillars of Islamic faith. I want to add two other things, and that is uh, Sharia law. Sharia law, in Islam, there's not really a difference between religious law and civil law. In other words, the Quran and Islamic beliefs intend to cover every aspect of your life. So all of Sharia law is not all in the Quran, but comes from tradition handed down from the early Muslims. And there are several schools of Sharia law, but basically what it is is it is the overriding law for Muslims irrespective of what the civil law is. In other words, Islam as a religion has a law, a code of conduct that goes all the way from banking to your religious observance to your sexual practices to marriage to everything. It's an all-encompassing law or way of living called Sharia law. And then finally, jihad. Jihad is a word that means a striving. And over time, it's typically meant you can have jihad uh, of the heart, of the tongue, of the hand, and of the sword. So for example, a striving to please God uh, by the heart might be to follow the commandments of Islam, and by the hand might be to help the poor, and by the mouth might be to evangelize, to go tell people about Allah, and by the sword, pretty self-explanatory, by fighting injustice, fighting people in the name of Allah. And of course, in modern times, in the past hundred years or so, it's become very popularized by the radical, extremely conservative form of, of Islam as a duty, as almost a holy war, waging jihad against all of the unbelievers in the world. So jihad is not the same idea for all Muslims, but I wanted to mention it because it's become such a big deal in uh, the hands of a lot of radical Muslims in our world. So let me pause there, see if we can take a couple of questions. What we've talked about is kind of quickly, I realized, but I wanted you to see where Islam came from, what its core beliefs are, what its major branches are, and then we're going to go into the Quran itself for just a little bit. But see if we have time for a few questions first. Why do you think God blessed Hagar since it wasn't part of his plan? Why did God bless Hagar? Why did he uh, basically make a nation out of Ishmael uh, since it wasn't part of his original plan? I have a lot of thoughts about this, but I'll just give you two really short ones. One, I think God had compassion on Hagar. Hagar basically was mistreated by Sarah. Hagar was about to die in the desert. And I believe for Abraham's sake or out of his own compassion, he has compassion on Hagar and Ishmael. For the sake of Abraham, who believed God and it was counted as righteousness, I think he said, this is not part of my plan, but I will still bless Ishmael. 
Now, you could ask yourself, did God have a long view? And is Ishmael and the tribes of Arabia and Muhammad and Islam, does that play a part in God's plan? I have no doubt that it plays some long-reaching part in God's sovereign plan for humanity. But we'll have to await uh, the denouement of that, I mean, the ending of that, to see what his long plan is. But I think for Abraham's sake, he blessed Ishmael as well, even though that wasn't the covenant. It would be with Isaac and the Jews. Uh, do you believe that the revelations that Muhammad attributed to Gabriel actually came from Satan? Or do you think it was the angel Gabriel? Uh, the, obviously, as a Christian and, just as, and also as a historian, it, it wouldn't surprise you to say, I do not believe that those revelations to Muhammad were authentic revelations from God. In other words, that we should all be following the Koran. I have several reasons that I believe that to be true, but that's a very typical Christian belief. In other words, Christians look at the Koran and say, we do not believe that that is an authentic revelation from God. It's not foreseen or foretold in the scriptures, either the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's very inconsistent with the New Testament. Uh, so for a variety of reasons, I do not believe so. Did those re where those revelations came from, where Muhammad got that, what the motives are, I couldn't reasonably say. I mean, I do not know, but I am convinced for a number of reasons that those are not authentic revelations from God. That would be a, a typical Jewish or Christian understanding of that. When the descendants of Hussein were killed, how did the Shiites decide to choose their next caliphate? Yeah, good question. I won't go into this, but it's fascinating. We just don't have enough time in one session. But basically, the Shiites found the next blood relative. And so they have their own list of successors, which isn't the same as the Sunnis. But it only goes as far as the 12th one in the list. So you've got Muhammad, you've got Ali, and you've got, and they called them imams. Okay, and so you go down, that's just another word. It means a representative of God. In other words, they saw that person not just as like the Pope. They saw that person as the Pope and the President. You know, everything all put together, right? Like, kind of like a Moses figure going to lead the nation. So they go all the way down to the 12th one. And the 12th one disappears as a little kid. And so, obviously, most historians think, yeah, the Sunnis killed him. But the Shiites think, no, they didn't. God snatched him away and is going to bring him back at the end times. And so the 12th imam, and so you hear a lot of Shiites called uh, Twelvers, meaning they believe in an end time scenario, which we've covered in another series, but it's really interesting. Anyway, so the Shiites believe that this 12th imam was taken away by God and in the end times will come back, by the way, with Jesus. And the name they give to this 12th imam who will come back is called the Mahdi. M-A-H-D-I. When you see that, that's a peculiarly Shiite view of their 12th imam, which is where the line ends for them, and that he will come back in the end times. So they kind of followed the nearest bloodline of Muhammad. Does that continue today? Uh, does that continue today? It doesn't continue today. And today, there is no centralized leader of the faith. When we get into what's going on today, when I get the map at the end, I want to show you what's it look like today. Because for a while, there was a caliph. There was a guy who was pretty much over. He was a Sunni, but he was pretty much representing Islam mainly because he had an empire. Think of the, uh, you probably don't know these, but the Abbasid Empire, the Umayyad Empire, the Ottoman Empire, World War I, those are all Muslim empires ruled by a chief dude, you know, the caliph. And so they followed that all through history. That doesn't exist today, but it's going to come into play here in a few minutes. Hold that thought. But the Shiites believe that the 12th imam will come back at the end of time. Where does the Muslim Brotherhood fit in? Muslim Brotherhood, and we've done more detail on this in a prior series, by the way. I think it was called... Uh, Jews and Muslims uh, in the 21st century, but we trace the rise through the 19th and 20th century of that strain of radical, I'm going to call it radical Islamism, but basically the Muslim Brotherhood is one of the first. Uh, they kind of invented the idea of 
they didn't invent this. I mean, this has happened all through history. But in modern times, they came up with the idea of overthrowing nations uh, and terrorism as we know it. They pioneered a lot of that. Saeed Qutb, who was their kind of their spiritual founder, uh, suicide bombers, all that kind of thing came out of that movement. The Muslim Brotherhood was one of those movements. The Muslim Brotherhood was trying to overthrow Muslim nations. And I'll tell you why in a few minutes when we talk about Islamism. Well, let me go ahead and uh, move forward just a little bit because I want to get into the Quran a little. I want to answer a second question. So our first question is, and I realize we went through that kind of quickly, but I hope it gives you a, a chronological picture. What can we learn about the origin and development of Islam? You know where it came from. You know when it was situated after Christianity. You know about the Sunni-Shiite split and that within the Sunnis, you know, there are some much more fundamental groups. And then the Shiites see their religious and political leader is the same, and the Sunnis see them as two different people. Okay? Well, let's talk about the relationship then, the conflict between Islam and Judaism and Christianity. Is that inherent? Is it embedded in the Quran? I don't have time to go into a great bit of detail, but I do want to pick out some Quranic verses in chronological order for you of how the Quran talks about dealing with people of the book. People of the book refers to Jews and Christians, meaning Muhammad said, We're, I'm in the same line as the Jews and Christians. Jews and Christians have their holy books from God, but I am the last, the great messenger who has the final word from God. So Jews and Christians weren't considered the same as everybody else out there. They were considered in some sense God's people. So here's what the Quran says a little bit about that. Surah 29, argue only in the best way with the people of the book except with those of them who act unjustly. Say, we believe in what was revealed to us and in what was revealed to you. Our God and your God is one. We are devoted to him. A couple of things here. Number one, one of the sources of conflict, believe it or not, between Islam, Jews, and Christians is Islam claims to worship the same God. And so they're saying, we worship the same God. We just do it right. And you do it wrong. I mean... That, that's kind of the message. The second thing is, this is early. In other words, chronologically early in Muhammad's career when he was not very powerful. And he did indeed. I mean, when he was, remember, he was driven out of Mecca and uh, he was attacked by some other people. He made some alliances with Jewish tribes. I mean, Muhammad went on after his first wife died. He married a Christian woman. He married a, he had like, a tradition says he probably had 13 wives in his lifetime, but one of them was a Jewish woman, one of them was a Christian woman. And so you, at the beginning, shuras are very much about justice, and they're very much more peaceful, kind of live and let live. And this is kind of a live and let live verse. Then, the truth deny they who say, talking about the Christians, behold, God is Christ, the Son of Mary. In other words, Muslims say, look, you Christians really are in our tradition but when you say that Jesus Christ is God, in other words, the one born of Mary is God, you have totally misunderstood Jesus. You have totally twisted it. You are now as bad as an unbeliever because you have said that God has a son. That's blasphemy. Say this, O followers of the gospel, do not overstep the bounds of truth in your religious beliefs. Do not follow the errant views of people who have gone astray and have led many others astray and are still straying from the right path by saying Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The fundamental confession of faith for Christians is blasphemy to Islam. It puts you not as a good Christian who understands things rightly. It puts you in the camp of an unbeliever. Say, disbelievers, I do not worship what you worship. You do not worship what I worship. I will never worship what you do, and you will never worship what I do. You have your religion, and I have mine. You'll see this quoted a lot. This is kind of a middle of his career, Shura. And basically, you'll see this quoted a lot by people who, very seriously, Muslims who say, this is the essence of Islam. It's not radical Islam. We have a live and let live. We worship our religion, you do your religion. There are Muslims who believe that, and they look to verses like this and say, Islam is a peaceful religion. That verse is in the Quran, and you see those kinds of sentiments earlier in Muhammad's career. 
Let's keep going. But I want you to see this, these things will get quoted and you will see Muslims who believe, who do believe that Islam is a peaceful religion and probably practice it very much that way. Fight in Allah's cause, this is getting near the end. This is after he's got an army in Medina and he begins to uh, have some military success along with success in people coming to that faith. And fight in Allah's cause against those who wage war against you, but do not commit aggression and wage war against them. That only lasted till Umar, the second successor. And man, he really expanded it. I mean, this un it really is kind of an unbelievable story. In the course of those... Uh, Abu Bakr, Umar, in that time period, they boiled out of Saudi Arabia. They conquered so much land, it isn't funny. It was really historically an anomaly of how successful their armies were. But here, in Muhammad's lifetime, he says, do not commit aggression, for Allah does not love aggressors. Slay them wherever you may come upon them and drive them away from wherever they drove you away, for oppression is even worse than killing. So here you see the idea of war, violence is okay, but it's only okay in defending yourself or if you are oppressed. These are near the end. These, surah number nine is kind of famous, called, called the sword verse. And uh, this is near the end of the revelations. And you hear things like this. When the four forbidden months are over, wherever you encounter the idolaters, kill them, seize them, besiege them. Wait for them at every lookout post. If they repent, maintain the prayer, pay the alms, let them go their way, for Allah is forgiving and merciful. Christians and Jews would be in this category at this point if you believe Jesus is the Son of God. That would be basically making you an unbeliever. And so you see verses like this also in the Quran. This is where the more radical folks look and they say, Muhammad told us, and historically the successors of Muhammad did go out and conquer unbelievers. They gave them the choice of repent or die. That really did happen historically. And then finally, fight those of the people of the book. Now we're talking about the Christians and the Jews who do not truly believe in Allah and the last day, who do not forbid what Allah and his messenger have forbidden, who do not obey the rule of justice until they pay the tax and agree to submit. So the way they dealt with Jews and Christians was, is you will not say silly things like Jesus is a God, You'll keep your mouth shut and not be saying stuff like that or trying to proselytize or share your faith. If you will pay a tax, then you can live peacefully in a Muslim territory. If you are going to go tell people about your faith or you want to say, you know, Jesus is God, that's blasphemy, and you're going to die. And so that's kind of the way you've tended to see Islam. And I'm painting with a broad brush because there were certain regimes that were more harsh, certain that were more... Uh, lenient toward Christians and Jews, but basically that's a really short snapshot of what the Quran has to say. How do Muslims understand this? They're too broad, I'm really painting with a broad brush here, but for, in the interest of time, there are two ways people look at this. One is called abrogation. Abrogation means the things that Muhammad said later overrule the things that he said earlier. And so Hamas and Hezbollah and Al-Qaeda and ISIS understand, they interpret the Quran with this principle of abrogation. If Muhammad said, you got your religion, I got mine, no harm, no foul. Later he says, wherever you find the unbelievers, slay them. That overrides what he said earlier. Other Muslims want to take the entire Quranic context. And they want to say, in that time period, yes, there were some harsh things said, there were harsh things done, but the essence of Islam is more peace-loving. In other words, they want to put it all together and distill it. Does that make sense? Again, that's, I'm really painting with a broad brush, but that's the difference in how Muslims want to understand the Koran. And you'll see that uh, done a little bit differently. So, how is that shaping our world today? How is this having an impact. I want to point out two big things to you. One is this. Islam has a transnational vision. In other words, Islam doesn't think of itself as a nation, which Judaism kind of does. I mean, think about it. Abraham was given a promise. You'll become a great nation. You'll have a land that's your own, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Jews understand themselves in some way really tied to that promise of Israel. It's why the nation of Israel is so important to the Jews. 
That's not so much for Muslims, although they consider that land holy and theirs because Ishmael was the older brother, right? They not only share the same God, they also share the same interest in the same piece of property. But the Jews see that as a defining thing. Muslims don't see a piece of territory as essential. All Muslims everywhere become what they call the Ummah, the body of believers, if you will, kind of what the way Christians think. Christians don't think of themselves as, oh, we're Christians, we live in one country. Christians believe we're part of the kingdom of God or the church, if you will, and that is all kinds of people from all over the world. The difference between Islam and Christianity, they both see themselves as transnational, I mean, crossing national boundaries. Our identity is we are brothers and sisters, fellow citizens with every Christian in the world, even more than we are citizens of the United States or of South Korea or of whatever. Muslims see it that way too. The difference is in Christianity, the New Testament talks very specifically about, and by the way, whatever country you're in, be a good citizen there. You, that's not the case in Islam. So it's transnational. With Sunnis, the way that has kind of uh, come about is they're comfortable with a government in a nation as long as it's a Muslim nation. So for example, you have Saudi Arabia, which is a Wahhabi, Sunni, Muslim nation, but they have a king. Indonesia, they have a democracy down there, but they're a Muslim nation. Uh, other places would have other kinds of governments, but they're a Muslim nation, they have Sharia law. Turkey is a Muslim nation, they actually have a secular government ever since uh, Ataturk founded modern Turkey, they said, we're gonna be Muslims, but we're gonna have a non-religious leadership. Now that's changing a little bit. If you're watching the news, you're seeing their current ruler consolidating power, acting a little more like a caliph, you know, and bringing much more Islam into their government. But the Sunnis basically were comfortable with different Muslim nations. Shiites, not so. I think of Iran. Who is the most important person in Iran, politically and religiously? The Ayatollah Khamenei. The Ayatollah is the religious leader and the political leader. They have a president, they have other people, they all report to the religious leader. That's what the Shiites thought the way it should be done. So they're transnational. The Shiites see it very much as, we got the body of all these Muslim believers, we got the guy who's supposed to be in charge, and let's just go spread the caliph, the caliphate. In other words, let's spread Muslim Islam totally across the borders. Don't care anything about borders. We're just all going to be Muslims one of these days. Sunnis have more of a, well, we're okay with the borders, and we're okay with the states, but as long as it's a Muslim nation. So there came a bunch of Sunnis. This goes back to the Muslim Brotherhood, and they were called Islamists. And what the Islamists wanted to do, they're okay with nations, but what they didn't like was a non-religious government. And so the Muslim Brotherhood got in trouble not for fighting the West and Christians, for trying to overthrow Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Jordan. They tried to overthrow the governments of some of the Islamic nations to make them more Islamic. And so they were okay with separate nations, but they didn't think they were very Islamic didn't think they were very good Muslims. So in both Sunni and Shiite, you have these kind of radical elements, and that's my second point. Number one, Islam is transnational, and there are forces there that really want to do away with the nation-state system. And secondly is, you have radical elements in both parties. Shiites, uh, think Hezbollah, think Iran. Iran is one big terrorist organization. I mean, they're Shiites and they have a vision to literally fight every unbeliever and take over the world for Allah. Amongst the Sunnis, you have these different groups. Uh, Hamas is a Sunni radical group. Al-Qaeda is a Sunni radical group. ISIS is a Sunni radical group. And so what you have are these radical, more fundamental, more reading the Quran as let's go slay the unbelievers in both of them. So the things that tend to be shaping it is their transnational identity, the idea of spreading throughout the world, and secondly, that both of the major branches have some pretty radical elements in them. Okay? In the news, 
I'd like to end with this in the news segment. What I want to talk to you about is I cannot get Kim Jong-un out of the news, and that is the best thing that has ever happened to Iran. Let's talk about nuclear weapons. So today, everybody you think about nuclear threat, you think about North Korea. You think about firing ballistic missiles, you think about testing what appeared to have been an H-bomb by Kim Jong-un and his regime. Their religion's really different, and I'll get to it in another section. They're not Muslim by any means, but they fit in another one of our categories. But quietly, meanwhile, over here is Iran. In Iran, you see a picture there on the left is the Ayatollah Khamenei. On the right is President Rouhani. And so Iran had a nuclear deal. For a long time, we're trying to keep Iran from a nuclear track. You're probably aware of the, of the controversy around that. But the bottom line is Iran is making progress on acquiring nuclear weapons. And so I want to talk about that briefly. I put North Korea up there just because North Korea is doing Iran the biggest favor in the world. Because the only thing that's helping Iran getting them out of the public limelight right now is North Korea is a bigger threat. And so they're quietly moving on that track. And their neighbors are very nervous. I want to make this point to you. Let's go back to the Middle East. It's not just America. It's not just the West that has a problem. So what you have is, I'm going to put, uh, put them in red. So you have Iran, Shiite. They see it as a caliphate. They see it as their leader's responsibility to get all Muslims united, go fight all the unbelievers, basically take Islam everywhere by force and bring in the end times when the Mahdi and Jesus will come back and Allah will reward them and punish all the non-believers. That is their future scenario. However, their Sunni neighbors see it a little bit differently. So Saudi Arabia, Sunni, very fundamentalist, but Sunni. Egypt, Libya, Bahrain, Qatar, Kuwait, Iraq, Syria is Sunni. Turkey is Sunni. All these nations back here off the right of this map are Sunni. And so they are concerned. Obviously, they share some basic things as Muslims with Iran. They share the basic beliefs. They do indeed share some element of hostility one way or another toward the West for, and then certainly toward Israel, a common enemy they can unite around. But they're also extremely nervous about Iran. Think about what Iran's doing now. Iran is basically inserted itself into Syria, destabilizing that. Iran, huge Shiite population in Iraq, Iran is probably, arguably, the dominant force in Iraq today. So if you're Saudi Arabia or you're Egypt or you're Turkey, you're looking at this and you're saying, look, we're fellow Muslims, but we don't want our nation to go away. We don't agree with you Shiites theologically. We've got some bad family history going here. Yes, we both hate Israel, but you know what? We're getting really nervous about Iran. And so part of our foreign policy has been to leverage the countries that, the Muslim countries that feel as threatened by Iran in some sense as we do. So you do see tensions and fault lines inside Islam in the Middle East. And that's why you'll see Saudi Arabia and Egypt really a little more fluid in their alliances because they see Iran as a threat to some extent as well. So understanding that Sunni-Shiite split, understanding their different vision for the future kind of helps us understand why the Middle East is not a coherent block of Muslims against the world. It's actually more nuanced than that. And you'll see foreign, our foreign policy trying to, in one way or another, take advantage of that to find mutual allies in the region. Make sense? So understanding the history of Islam, I think, helps us a little bit. You have a question or two? We can probably close on one or two. Yes. What is the difference between Muslims who uh, are radical, who we fear, and Christians who do radical things like bomb abortion clinics? Yeah, what's the difference between the two? Well, from a Christian point of view, you can't find anything 
in the New Testament. You can't find anything in the first 300 years of Christianity that would even remotely lend you to the idea that you should go blow up an abortion clinic, uh, that you should go kill somebody that disagrees with you. I mean, that's, that's just so, so out of the original founding ideas. Now, historically, have Christians done bad things? Absolutely. People who call themselves Christians have done horrific things. That's true in any religion. Actually, that's true in any ideology. I mean, forget, even forget the religions, communist, social, or whatever. That's true across the board. So let's retreat from that. Because if you just say everybody in every religion has done something bad, you're not really saying anything. The key to that question is, what is part of the real DNA of your beliefs? So that is not part of the DNA of Christian belief. It's just wrong. Now, there are Muslims who would say, the radical Muslim extremists, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, suicide bombers, uh, any of that, that's not part of the DNA of Islam. I respect their opinion about that. They're Muslims, they choose to see their religion that way and they practice it that way. I will simply say this, the text of the Quran is where those terrorists anchor their beliefs. I'm not telling you they're right, I'm just saying they anchor their beliefs in the Quran. They just see it differently than Muslims who disagree with them. And I respect that, but they anchor it there. They anchor their actions in early history of Islam. And so I think you have two different situations and two different arguments. Are both of them bad? Absolutely. I'm not justifying Christians who do violent things, but I'm saying they're rooted in early Islamic history. Now, that doesn't make them authentically Muslim. I'm not trying to tell you, though, they're the real Muslims and the peaceful Muslims are not the real Muslim. I'm not making that kind of statement. I'm just making the observation that they root their beliefs in the Quran and the early history. So I think there are some differences, but I would condemn that violence either way, of course. Is Sharia law incompatible with Western values and Western law? And how many Muslims worldwide live under or desire to live under Sharia law? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I have to get you some better stats, but just off the top of my head. The question is, Sharia law, is it compatible with liberal Western democracies? Not even close. It's one of the really ironies of our political situation is that some of the people who we call liberals or progressives in, in our culture, and I'm not taking any political pot shot, I just want you to point out the irony of this, is that the people in America who hold to the liberal ideas of democracy, whether you agree with it, disagree with it, it's not my point at all, basically should be some of the biggest opponents of Islam in general because Sharia law isn't even remotely compatible with liberal democratic principles. How many Muslims want to, are under Sharia law? I don't know the exact number because, for example, Turkey has a secular law, but Saudi Arabia has Sharia law and Iran has Sharia law. So a, a large portion of them basically are under a, a Sharia law. They're like five major schools of Sharia law. How many want to be? You do see varying levels of Muslims wanting to be under Sharia law, but you need to be careful when I say that you don't just flash to some terrible things. What their vision of it is is merging Think about merging church and state. Maybe that's the easiest way to say it for Americans, is they would like to see religious rules inform political discourse more. So in that sense, I believe the majority of Muslims in the world see Sharia, meaning bringing religious principles into civic life, are in favor of that. One more. Why do Muslims hate Jews the way they do? Why do Muslims hate Jews? This is almost universal. I'm not telling you every Muslim in the world hates every Jew in the world. I'm, I'm not, definitely not saying that, but pretty much. I mean, uh, just statistically, I'm being a little funny, but really pretty much statistically. That's the one thing that really unites all of Islam. They share the same God. They share an interest in the same land and they have kind of competing claims. So just big picture, think about it this way. Ishmael was the oldest child. All the promises of God should go to Ishmael. That's the way it works. In fact, that's what the Bible really said until the Jews changed it to Isaac. 
They believe that Christians and Jews have changed and deliberately altered the scriptures. Otherwise, it would say whatever the Quran says is right. Some of the Quran stories, are, uh, the Quran has stories from the Old Testament in it. And some of them are the same, and some of them have been changed. And so Islam says the Jews changed a bunch of stuff, and they basically made Isaac the hero when Ishmael was really the hero of this story. Think about stories like Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. In the Quran, that's Ishmael. And think, you know, you think about uh, Isaac being the child of promise. The Quran, that's completely Ishmael. And so they feel like they have been cheated out of their inheritance, if you will, and that the Jews are in a land that was promised through the line of Ishmael to them. So they have contention about who's really worshiping God correctly, have contention about who really gets this land. Those are the religious reasons. There are more recent reasons as well, but it goes way back to a deep-seated disagreement over the land and the God. And then recent history has given many, many other reasons. And we'll kick into that a little bit too. Next time, sorry we had a, didn't have a lot of time with that, but we know enough now to start comparing. I want to take a little break next week before we move on to some other world events. We're going to have a special guest who's coming to see us from the Middle East, and I would like to have an interview with him, and I'd like to talk to him about what's it like being a Christian in the Middle East today. And that's what we're going to do next time. Thank you, guys.